Welcome to everyone who's here with us on Zoom, joining us on Drisha Live and on Facebook. So we are back again for the second class of a three-class series, The Legacy of the Ten Plagues with Dr. Malka Simkovich. Last week was extremely interesting. If you missed part of it, feel free to catch up in our archive at drisha.org. But this week, we will be learning about the, the Ten Plagues in Greek, Roman, and early Christian memory. So take it away, please. Thank you very much, Noah, and good to see you all. I'm going to try to slow down the pace because last week I was Zooming. A lot of it was the energy of having my children home for about a month. Now, thankfully, everybody is where they belong. And so we're going to take some more deep breaths and slow down the pace uh, tonight. Last week, we discussed... Uh, the fact that early Second Temple sources are actually quite sympathetic to Pharaoh. We looked at Ezekiel the tragedian from the second century BCE. We looked at Artapanus. If you haven't uh, gotten the source sheet, I can email the source sheet to you. We looked at late Second Temple uh, Hellenistic Jewish writings on the Exodus story, which tend to be focused on the fearsomeness of God as he is a uh, envisioned by both Egyptians and Israelites. And the focus is not on the evil, the inherently genocidal um, and maniacally horrible nature of Paro, but more the focus on the process by which all the, the world, that is the Egyptians and the Jews, come to know God. Now, all of this changes, uh, I suggested, in the first century, as is evidenced by the writings of the Alexandrian philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, and the first century Judean slash Roman, Josephus, Flavius Josephus. We see a totally different image and a totally different interpretation of the story of the Exodus and specifically of the character of Paro and the Egyptians. For the first time, I think, in the history of Jewish interpretation of the story of the Exodus, we see in the writings of Philo and Josephus uh, a presentation that is fanatically, what well, today we would say anti-Semitic, but I'll say anti-Jewish, fanatically in a way that we don't see in earlier sources. And I did not fully address the question of why this is the case. I wanted you to come back. So I sort of left on a cliffhanger. The question is, why? was there this dramatic transition in the second century and first century BCE, we see writings that tend to um, not focus on the evil nature of the Egyptians and then Philo and Josephus are very, very negative and explicitly call Paro uh, wicked. And by the way, this is how many children in yeshiva day school systems read and understand the character of Paro. My husband is from Boston. He's a very, very enthusiastic Boston New England fan. And my five-year-old yesterday said to me, you know who is wicked? Paro. And I said, okay, yeah. I mean, you could read the story that way. And he said, you know who else is wicked? The Yankees. And then he just walked out of the room shaking his head. You know, those are like the two, the, like, the two embodiments of evil in his imagination are Paro and the Yankees. And I did very little to dispute his uh, feelings. But the question is why? What is going on in the first century that compel Josephus and Philo, who are both writing to diasporan audiences. Josephus maybe more to a Gentile diasporan audience, Philo more to a Jewish 
diasporan audience, but very conscious of the fact that they're living in a world in which there are Egyptians. And in fact, it's incorporated into the Roman Empire, uh, the most powerful empire um, in the region, of course, at that time. So what is going on that, that uh, galvanizes this shift that compels these thinkers to present Paro as such an evil, genocidal maniac, essentially? So to understand uh, what causes the shift, we have to look at how others, Greeks and Romans and then later Christians are not only talking about the Jews, but talking about the origins of the Jews. And so as Jews are coming together regularly in the synagogue to read their scriptures, because that's how the synagogues are used in the second temple period, they're not used yet for normative prayer. Jews are reading their scriptures regularly and they're interpreting them. And they're telling the story of their own election, their own chosenness, at the same time that Greeks and Romans are looking at these Jews and saying, why do they insist on being outsiders? Why won't they fully integrate into the Hellenistic world? Why won't they share table fellowship with us? Why do they insist on the barbaric practice, and that's a word, a Greek word, barbaric practice, of circumcision? By the way, like the native Egyptians who also practice circumcision. But the sophisticated, in square quotes, Greeks and Romans looked at the Jews and said, they insist on not assimilating. And not only do they insist on being liminal to society, but those very Jews, ironically, are insisting that they're the ultimate insiders, that they are chosen by this one true creator God, that they're the most special people ever. Well, we are of the opinion that they are on the social periphery. And not only that, but they're pariahs to society. They're threatening the stability and the welfare of our society because they're not adopting all of our practices. And because there's no separation in the ancient world between the public sphere and the religious sphere, when the Jews do not go to public festivals honoring the gods, they're making not only a religious statement, but they're making a political statement. When you have the festival of Dionysus, you have this big triumphal parade throughout the streets of Alexandria or, or maybe Rome, and there are no Jews, you might, if you were a Gentile in the ancient world, look at your neighbor and say, why are the Jews staying home? Not only do they take part in a separate religion, but also they're bad patriots. They're not good citizens. They're not loyal to the empire. You know why? Because they have dual loyalty. Ring a bell? Or maybe not even dual loyalty, but they have another loyalty, a singular loyalty to Judea, that region in the backwoods of the empire. You know, one time, this is not a funny story, but I laugh whenever I say it. One time I said to a group, you know, Judea in the Roman world, it was like South Dakota. Like, you don't really know anybody from South Dakota. It's sort of the backwoods of the country, the United States. And everyone's like, why is South Dakota like a place that's giving us so many problems? It's just, it's, it's South Dakota. Anyway, somebody in the audience raised his hand and said, I'm from South Dakota. And so never again did I make the mistake of choosing a random location and derisively labeling it as the backwoods of anything. So now I just tell the story to tell you that I have made dumb comments in my life. But Judea was considered to be non-cosmopolitan. It was considered to be liminal to where the cultural uh, centers of the empire were. And besides Rome in the Roman world, the real cultural center was Alexandria. This was the crown jewel of the Roman empire. 
So as Jews are coming together and they're reading their scriptures and they're reminding themselves of the nature of their chosenness, Greeks and Romans are getting wind of these origin stories that the Jews are telling one another. And they're becoming aware of these scriptural traditions. The Jews say that they lived in Egypt but were treated so horribly that they were miraculously sent out by their God. What kind of nonsense is this? That their God enacted horribly oppressive plagues so much so that the Pharaoh acknowledged the nature of this one true Judean God? Where does that appear in our own history books? This is cuckoo. The Greeks and Romans found these traditions very insulting um, and ironic because they were coming from communities that they felt were actually not, uh, not central at all, not particularly special in any way. And so what we find in the late second temple period is that Greek and Roman thinkers began to talk about the Exodus story in ways that alter it very profoundly. And instead of the story that we find in Exodus, the story of uh, uh, God choosing the Jewish people or the Israelites, of course, and creating a covenantal relationship with them that is unique, the story that the Greeks and the Romans begin to tell is a story not of miraculous redemption, but of expulsion. And so in the memory of some Greek thinkers, why are the Israelites sent out of Egypt? Because they were lepers, not, not, um, not in a figurative sense, lepers of society, but actual lepers, diseased. So it wasn't the Egyptians that were the recipients of these physical ailments, but in fact, the Israelites themselves. So we're going to look at some of these sources and then we're going to think about how um, these, these origin stories that are profoundly altered in the Greek and Roman tradition find expression in the Christian tradition. And this is all a setup for next week because next week, as we move into the medieval period and we look at Jewish-Christian relations in the medieval period, we'll find that it becomes very, very resonant when Christians say Jews spread disease. That's not out of the blue. That's not in a cultural vacuum. That has a very, very ancient uh, root. And we're going to talk about that root today. So what I'm going to do is share my screen. Uh, oh, okay, thank you. I see that you did share the source sheet. There are a couple typos that I corrected today, but it's basically the same thing. Uh, okay, so let me share my screen right over here. Uh, okay, so now you should see uh, early Greek and Roman writings on the Jews. You see that? Okay, so this is always a little tricky. I don't love sharing my screen because then I don't get to see everybody, but that's okay. I also don't get to see, sometimes there are questions that are time sensitive in the chat box. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't always get to see. If there's a question and I don't see you, then please uh, don't hesitate to plan to ask that question at the end. I'll make sure to leave time. All right, so we're going to look at against Appian, which I think I mentioned last week is the first systematic defense of the Jewish religion, as far as we know. And it's produced at the end of the first century by Josephus. Now it's called against Appian because Appian is the focus of Josephus's ire. But the, the, the uh, treatise is a collection of numerous sources that Josephus is battling against. And all of these sources comprise, some are uh, Egyptian, some are Greek, and some are Roman, but they all share common themes. Um, 
the themes that they share are accusations against the Jews that the Jews have not properly integrated themselves into their host culture. And so Josephus is arguing for the integrity of the Jewish religion. And one of his main arguments is that Jews are not only incredibly loyal to their host empire, but they also contribute culturally, philosophically, intellectually. Um, and so he, he cites all of these um, sources that he has and then he rebuts them. But I'm less interested in Josephus's rebuttal and I'm more interested in what these people are saying about the Jews. And I'm going to start with a first century BCE grammarian who lives in Alexandria named Lysimachus. Um, so we, we are not uh, going to read everything that Josephus says about Lysimachus, but you are going to note that there are certain themes that you might be aware of from the Exodus story as we have it in the Tanakh that are flipped on its head by Lysimachus. Whether Lysimachus is reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that Greek-speaking Jews read in the diaspora, whether he's reading the Septuagint or he just hears about these stories is unclear to us. But let's take a look. This is what Josephus says about Lysimachus. The Israelites who left Egypt left under the following circumstances. In the reign of a certain king of Egypt, Bechorus, we don't know who that could have been, the Jewish people, now of course it's anachronistic because we would be talking about the Israelites, who were afflicted with leprosy, scurvy, and other maladies took refuge in the temples and lived a mendicant existence. So they're just wandering around, they're poor, they're again, they're leeches on society and um, you know, physically spreading disease. The victims of disease were very numerous. So a dearth insert throughout Europe, uh, Egypt, presumably because people are dying, spreading disease and, and dying. And by the way, again, if you know anything about Christian accusations against the Jews of Europe in the medieval period, you know, this is it doesn't come out of the blue in the 12th century. It's quite ancient. Okay, so Bechorus uh, consults an oracle about the failure. It's not just the dearth, it's not just the death, but it's also the, the failure of crops. So there's just nothing is growing. Uh, things are not going well economically. And so the oracle says to the king, you have to purify the temples of all those who are impure. You have to get them out of the sanctuaries, drive them into the wilderness. Now, who is squatting, not paying their rent and squatting in these temple spaces? Well, it's the Israelites. And what is the king told to do? You got to drive these squatters out of the temples, get them into the wilderness and drown them, drown them in the Mediterranean, I suppose, and um, and you just have to um, you just have to get them out of your land. So, on receiving these oracular instructions, Bucharest gets his priests and his servitors, you know, the officials of these local temples, and he says, "You got to make a list of all these unclean persons." And the Jews are not. I know lists make me very uncomfortable. We think about the Holocaust. I mean, I do maybe. And so, okay. So you drop a list of the unclean persons and you deliver them to the military charge to be conducted into the wilderness. So just make a list of all the Jews. Although again, they're not yet mentioned as Jews, get all these lepers out of our temples, out of our cities, out of our urban spaces and sink them in the ocean. So that's the plan. Now, as this is being put into practice, a certain Moses advises these lepers to take courage. We're going to fight back. Moses says, I'm going to lead the lepers into, into a resistance uh, group against this program to get us out of the city and drown us in the sea. Uh, and so uh, he says, we're going to gather and we're going to make a straight track towards inhabited country. 
uh, we're, and, and he says, we're going to, you know, we've been driven into the wilderness, but we're going to go back to the inhabited city and we're going to show goodwill to no man. So we're going to go back into the cities that we were kicked out of and we're going to just ruin life for everybody. We're going to make life stink for everyone. We're going to show goodwill to no man, offer not the best, but the worst advice, overthrow any temples. I love that because it's so Hellenistic. Like what is more offensive than giving someone bad advice in, in the third or second century BC if you're like a philosopher, like, ah, oh, that's so hostile. Somebody gave me bad advice. To overthrow any temples and altars to the gods so everybody ascends. They say, this is a great idea. Let's go back into the cities and show goodwill to no man. They proceed to put these decisions into practice. What do they do? They maltreat the population. They plunder. They set fires to the temples until they get to Judea. And what do they do when they get to Judea? They build a city called Jerusalem, Hierosula. Hieros is a temple, a word for a temple in Greek. Why? Why do they do this? Because of their sacrilegious propensities. So they build their own temple. Doesn't mean that they have a particularly legitimate God, uh, but they build their own temple and they call this new city Jerusalem. So what are the origins of the Jews? Not that the one true creator God has chosen the Jewish people to create this magnificent or Goyim, a light unto the nations, uh, this, uh, this transcendent and innovative and you know radically new covenantal relationship. No, none of that. The Jews were expelled. They were expelled because they spread disease and they insisted on a, a not allowing themselves to be annihilated. They insisted on coming back into urban spaces and ruining life for everybody else. So can you imagine a worse thing to say about a group of people in the Hellenistic world? Well, we'll get to Appian, that's even worse. Uh, but we're going to see these themes. The Jews are outsiders, even when they seem insiders, the Jews um, destabilize right? They, uh, they come into our towns from the outside and they bring sickness and disease. They bring, um, they bring oppression. They bring death. Um, and, and this is what Lysimachus says. And Lysimachus, again, is not the only one uh, to make such a claim against the Jews. In fact, the first century BC Appian um, is even more shocking in his accusations against the Jewish people. And because he's so shocking, uh, Josephus just goes on and on and on about him. And I don't want to uh, spend so much time on Josephus's insults, but some of them are actually quite um, entertaining. And so he says, Josephus says, you know, I've already challenged the statements of Manetho, who's a third century BC Egyptian priest, uh, Hemeron and others, but you know, I got to get to the good stuff, Josephus says. I'm doubtful whether the shameless remarks of Appian, the grammarian, deserve serious refutation. Like they're so crazy that it's almost, you know, beneath me to address them. Some of these accusations resemble allegations made by others, right? We're going to see that what Appian says is very similar to Lysimachus. Some are very indifferent additions of his own. Some, most of them are pure buffoonery. Josephus is, and I cannot tell you the Greek word for buffoonery. Obviously, Josephus is writing in Greek with the help of some translators, because uh, his lingua franca, his original language is Aramaic, but he does, he does uh, know Greek by the end of his life. So to tell the truth, the writings of Appian display the gross ignorance of their father, of their author, a man of low character and a charlatan to the end of his days. Yet, since people believe this junk, Josephus says, since people are reading Appian, taking him seriously, I guess I just have to quote him, right? Yet since, oh, sorry, I don't know what just happened there. Since most people are so foolish 
as to find greater attraction in such compositions than in works of a serious nature. Like people are attracted to garbage because it's interesting and sort of exciting to be charmed by abuse and impatient of praise. I think it's incumbent upon me not to pass over without examination, even this author who has written an indictment of us formal enough for a court of law. So we don't have Appian's original writings of the Jews in full, but the way that Josephus speaks about Appian as being so deeply committed to demonizing the Jews, you can only imagine how committed Appian was to making this claim against Jews at a time when Jews are living throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, a, a contemporary of Appian in the first century BCE named Strabo says, wherever you go in the Roman Empire, wherever you are, you will find a synagogue. Now, usually when I ask students this, I ask them to, to finish the line. Strabo said, wherever you go in the Roman Empire, you will find a, and most people say Jew. But I think it's more interesting that Strabo says synagogue because that would indicate a community, a quorum, right? So not just that they're stragglers of Jewish travelers or traders um, throughout the Roman Empire, but that there are established semi-permanent or you know, totally permanent communities of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. Absolutely uh, in Rome, we have the evidence of that um, quite strongly in Alexandria and Antioch. These are the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. So there's no question that Appian is speaking to individuals who know Jews whether Josephus is right or wrong, that Appian himself doesn't know anything about Judaism, he is disseminating works to people who live among Jews. And that Josephus finds very dangerous, that people are reading Appian and they're reading things about their neighbors, their business partners, their, the children of, or the friends of their children, right? So Josephus finds Appian to be very, very dangerous. Now I observe, Josephus says, that people have a habit of being intensely delighted, this would be called schadenfreude today, when one who has been the first to malign another has his own vices, well, it's not exactly, but when one who has been the first to malign another has his own vices brought home to him. His, so now he's saying, I think, what the Jews are being accused of, ultimately Appian is guilty of. That's what I think Josephus is saying, although we could argue. Uh, but Appian's argument is difficult to summarize and his meaning is hard to grasp. So far as the extreme disorder and confusion of his lying statements and mid of analysis, we haven't even gotten to what Appian says, we gotta get there. One may say that some fall into the same category as those already investigated. Okay, what he's saying is, there are things that Appian says that others have said, but also he goes beyond it. So there's some things he says that relates to the departure of our ancestors from Egypt. Some things that Appian's gonna say about the origins of the Jews, others are saying it as well. But he also makes an indictment of the Jewish residents in Alexandria. And a third class of third category of his writings mixed up with the rest consists of accusations against our temple rites and our ordinances in general. Now I need to pause and say, Josephus is writing the 90s CE. The temple has fallen. He's writing from Rome. Appian is writing the first century BCE. So over a century before Josephus lives. You need to know what happens in the middle, in between the death of Appian and the life and times of Josephus in 38 CE. So that's actually, maybe Josephus was a baby because scholars think he was born around 37. So in 38 CE, there are violent anti-Jewish riots in Alexandria. Uh, this is not something that we commemorate in the Jewish calendar. 
And so unfortunately, many of us don't know about the very painful history of the hundreds of thousands of Jews who live in Alexandria in the first century. But these riots uh, lead to hundreds, maybe more, but easily hundreds of deaths. The synagogues of Alexandria are burned to the ground. Many flee the city. Um, many are horribly injured. Their homes are looted. It's a very, very traumatic event. So traumatic that Philo of Alexandria, I think I mentioned last week, ends up going to Rome to argue on behalf of the Jewish community. And Josephus knows about this, right? So when Josephus is reading Appian, even though Appian is living before the riots of 38 CE, he's blaming Appian for the riots of 38 CE, right? Because this is the kind of rhetoric that foments violence. This is the kind of thing that you say about a people before you compel them to attack, uh, before you compel your own people to attack them. So Josephus holds Appian responsible for the suffering, I think, of the Alexandrian Jewish community. Okay, now I have to keep going because Josephus is just so bad about Appian. That our ancestors neither were Egyptians by race nor were expelled from that country in consequence of contagious disease, I think I've already proven, right? He says, I've already, I've already discussed that. It's not on the source sheet. But, um, but the fact that uh, I, I've mentioned it here because I want you to know it's not just Lysimachus who says that the Jews were expelled from Egypt because they were diseased. Appian says it too. But I want to go to a later passage in Josephus where he talks again about Appian and Jewish disease because this is fascinating. The connection between Jews and the spread of disease is very, very strong in the Hellenistic period. So this is what App Appian says, 110,000 Jews flee Egypt. Uh, and with that, th he agrees with Lysimachus, so they probably had a common source. But Appian gives an astonishing and implausible explanation for the word Shabbat, which is implemented soon after the Exodus. Appian says, after a six-day march, it almost like reads like Midrashic, you know, Agadah, they developed tumors in the groin, these Israelites. And there's a word in Egyptian for this disease of tumor in the groin, and it's called sabatosis. Now, because these Israelites, I know this is people in the screen aren't giving me faces like, what? I'm just quoting this. I've, I, I'm not making this up. So because the Israelites in the wilderness developed these tumors, finally, when they reached Judea and they rested after six days journey in the wilderness, which is you know, totally off because obviously Appian doesn't know about the 40 year sojourn in the wilderness, but okay. They called that day Sabaton, preserving the Egyptian terminology because they were able to rest and engage in some self-care in light of their horrible groin disease. So again, Shabbat was established to commemorate the day of resting after six days of suffering from this disease in the wilderness. I mean, can you imagine Josephus calls this astonishing, right? I mean, this is just so insulting, but it checks off all the boxes. The Jews are not celebrating a, uh, you know, a weekly festival that honors their chosenness, their election, their specialness. No, they're remembering their diseased natures. They're, the origins of their chosenness actually are tied up in the fact that they are uh, nothing but disease spreaders. Uh, there's one more Appian source that I want to show you, and then maybe uh, we'll go to some Christian, some Christian sources, but it's already, um, it's already 7.30. Okay, so this is a story that I believe is the first libel, the first blood libel to ever have been produced against the Jews. Now, Magda Teter, who's a wonderful scholar, T-E-T-E-R, I think it's Magda Teter, who just wrote a book 
on um, the origins of blood libel, but she, she focuses on the medieval and modern period, blood libel and the Jews. But I, I do think that the story that I'm about to tell you is a form of a blood libel. Uh, there's no matzah in it, there's no blood in it, but I think you'll see what I mean. Um, Appian is spreading a story that Jews have to ritually murder a Greek every year. Ritually murder a Greek in their temple. And this is the story that uh, Appian is sharing. Josephus cites it. When Antiochus for Epiphanes uh, invades the temple in 175 BCE, right? So this is the beginning of the Hanukkah story and then it's, it's, it's recovered. And then we have this big celebration commemorating the recovery of the temple. But when Antiochus for Epiphanes goes into the Jerusalem temple, remember that Gentiles can't enter the temple. They can't go into the inner sanctum. So there's a lot of curiosity about what goes on in the Jerusalem temple and also a lot of negative speculation. Like what are the Jews doing there? They don't accept any of our gods. They don't go to our festivals that celebrate the gods. They're not pantheistic, right? So they're not syncretizing, you know, the way that uh, Romans worshiped the Egyptian goddess Isis when they started to settle in the Egyptian in Egypt, Jews aren't syncretistic, right? They're not incorporating the local gods in which they live. So like what's going on in this temple, in this ancient temple that we're not allowed to go into? Um, so there's curiosity. So Appian has all the answers. He says, don't be curious. I know exactly what's going on in this temple. Actually, it comes from Antiochus, Antiochus, when he came into the temple and took it over and occupied it for seven years. Let me tell you what was going on. So they found a Greek a Greek man who was tied up, you're going to find out, he was tied up in the Jerusalem temple. And this is what the Greek man said uh, to uh, Antiochus or to one of the officers of Antiochus. He said he was traveling about the province, looking for a livelihood, as one does, when he was suddenly kidnapped by men of a foreign race, read Jews, and conveyed to the temple. So kidnapped, essentially. He was shut up and seen by nobody. What did the Jews do to him? They fattened him on feasts of the most lavish description. This is like a little Hansel and Gretel situation over here. Like the Jews are kidnapping an innocent Greek wanderer and just like toss him in the temple and stuff him with foods so that he gets really fat. At first, these unlooked for attentions deceived him. Like, oh, this is really nice. I'm having these big feasts three times a day. Like, I mean, I'm tied up in, you know, rope and I can't whatever leave the temple, but I mean, they're feeding me. But suspicion followed and then consternation. Finally, on consulting the attendants who waited upon him, he heard of the unutterable law of the Jews for the sake of which he was being fed. So why are the Jews feeding him? The practice was repeated annually at a fixed season, which means it's, it's, a, it's a religious ritual. They would kidnap a Greek foreigner, fatten him for a year, convey him to a wood where they slew him, sacrifice his body with their customary ritual, partake of his flesh. That means they ate his flesh while immolating the Greek, swore an oath of hostility to the Greeks. Now, remember when I said with Lysimachus, what's the worst thing you could say about something in the ancient world? It's probably this, right? That we have Jewish cannibalism that is taking place while these same Jews are swearing an oath of hostility to the gods whom the Greeks revere the remains of their victim because they had no respect uh, for the physical form like the Greeks was thrown into a pit. So can you imagine from the Jewish perspective, knowing that these are stories that are not only circulating, but that people are truly believing them. And by the way, the accusation of Jewish cannibalism in the ancient world 
uh, is, uh, I wouldn't say pervasive, but we have multiple sources for it. Uh, there is a, there's a diaspora in Jewish rebellion known as the War of Quietus between 115 and 118 CE. Uh, it's mentioned in the Talmud. We don't have many Jewish sources about it, but there's a diaspora in rebellion against the Roman Empire. Very fascinating why diaspora and Jews would rebel outside of Judea. In 115, they rebel against Trajan. And uh, Dio Cassius, who is a Roman historian who recalls this war, says that one of the things that the Jews did was they ate the flesh of their enemies. So this is something that, um, yeah, this is something that people are saying about the Jews. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm going to leave it there in terms of the sources that Josephus is citing. Main thing that I want to convey to you is that there's this notion, uh, not only that Jews are diseased, uh, but that Jews are permanent outsiders that are threats to the stability of society. And that this uh, characteristic of the Jews is associated with the earliest origin stories of the Jews. So while the Jews are using their origin stories, their scriptures to say, look at how special we are. Look at how chosen we are. Greeks and Romans are circulating Jew uh, stories about the origins of the Jews and saying, look, they've always been like this. From their very, very earliest uh, stage as a people, they have been diseased, they have been leprous, they have been uh, oppressive, and they want, as Lysimachus says, to wish nothing good upon anybody outside of their own community, right? So much so that we get to Appian and we find that um, Jews are, are sacrificing Greeks ritually while swearing an oath to their gods. So you can imagine um, how Josephus felt about this a century or so after these things are written, given the events of the first century, by the end of the first century, obviously, not only has the Alexandrian Jewish community come under incredible stress, but there's been a massive war, the Jewish war, in which the temple has fallen, right, between 66 and 73, 73 CE. Now, we remember this war as the war in which the temple fell. That was like the big catastrophe. But in the first century, I'm not convinced that that's how Jews remember the, remembered the war. I don't know that Jews remembered that war as being, okay, this is characterized by the fall of the temple as much as this was a seven year conflict with the Roman empire that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Jews. So it's the casualties, it's the suffering, it's the starvation, it's the disease. Remember the siege of Jerusalem, most Jews are dying in that siege, not from a Roman sword, but from starvation and the spread of disease. That's how you die in a siege. That's how you die, right? And then at the very, very end, when you know all sort of the people are so weak or they're dead, that's when the walls are breached and they're too weak to fight back. And then it's very, very easy to set the city on fire and to take over. That's what happens. So, you know, the, the fall of the temple is a horrible tragedy. But I think what Josephus is also remembering because he lived through it and he also was a general in the war, as I mentioned last week, is the disease that the Jews are suffering at the hands of the Romans. And these very Romans are accusing the Jews of spreading disease when they're actually causing Jewish Jews to suffer from disease. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so I wanna move on and ask the following question. What do early Christians do with all of this? Christians who are writing polemical material about the Jews, what do they do with the story of the Exodus, 
presuming that they have some awareness of Greek and Roman writings about the Jews. Now, the separation between Christianity and Judaism takes four centuries. It's called the parting of the ways. The parting of the ways, the separation of these two religions, it doesn't happen in the first century or the second or the third. It happens in the fourth. So for four centuries, you have followers of Jesus, many of them known as church fathers, who are writing to communities saying, you've got to stop being Jewish. You can't follow Jesus. You can't go to church on Sunday. You can't read these gospel scriptures and also keep dietary law or allow your wives to go to the mikvah. I don't know that they were talking directly to women. Maybe they were, but you can't hold on to these ancestral traditions of the Jews or what we would call halakha law and also be a good Christian. And so you have a separation between what's happening on the ground and what the church fathers are writing. On the ground, there are what we call Jewish Christians. It's not a great term, but they're followers of Jesus who are keeping Shabbat. They're going to synagogue on Saturday. They're going to church on Sunday. They're keeping dietary laws, not all of them, some of them. And they're also fully bought into the idea that Jesus is the Christ, right? The Messiah. The church fathers are overcompensating for this reality. And they're arguing against the legitimacy of the Jewish religion. So they have to be extra polemical, polemical, right? They have to go out of their way to say everything that Judaism is, is in symbolic opposition to what we are. So that if we stand for ethics, they stand for law. If we stand for universalism, they stand for particularism. If we stand for, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, mostly it is, you know, love, they stand for hate. Okay. Um, on the ground, that's not the situation. Christianity and Judaism are not living in a binary. They're neighbors. Most, um, at least in Judea, Jews and Christians are living among one another. The separation um, doesn't take place, like I said, for centuries. So we're going to look not at history. We're going to look at literature, right? What are Christian church fathers saying about Judaism? Now, when they refer to the Exodus story, they don't focus on the diseased nature of the Jews, like the Greeks and Romans. They focus on Jewish rebelliousness. Ah, this is another binary. Where we are obedient, they are rebellious. And so where we keep this new covenant, they lost their old covenant because they were rebellious. So the character of the Jews are whatever is opposite to us, right? So in the Greek and Roman societies, uh, you know, the value there is to contribute culturally, philosophically, intellectually. And if you do that, you are a good Greek or Roman. And the Jews are, they're, they're leeching off of society. They're liminal, they're marginal, uh, and, and they're diseased. They suck all the good things out of society. For Christians, obedience to Christ and to, I say Christ, but of course, I'm Orthodox, so I'm saying in their own lexicon, obedience to their Messiah, obedience to their God is at the heart of their faith. And so the Jews are everything that's to the opposite of that. The Jews are rebellious. So the same story of the Exodus that for Greeks is a story about Jewish disease in the church fathers is a story about Jewish rebellion. So I don't know how much time I'm, I want to do, I want to take here because I'd love to uh, leave some time for conversation. But if you look at the book of Acts, you see this very clearly. And the sources that I'm going to show you um, are very difficult sources because I'll just scroll down. I have here Acts, I have Revelation, and I have, oh, did I have Hebrews? Letter to the Hebrews, yeah. 
it happens to be that these sources are very hard to date. And I'm going to keep them nebulous. They're written in Greek. They're probably late first century. Some scholars put some of these texts pre-70 CE, but I'm reading Axis. You know, I don't, I don't think Axis pre-70. Uh, maybe Hebrews is a little earlier, but there's a lot of nebulousness when it comes to the historical context of these texts. What do we know? We know that they're early, that they're written by followers of the Jesus movement. There is no Christianity with a capital C in the first century. And we know that um, when it comes at least to the author of Acts, as opposed to other gospels, especially Matthew, uh, that there's a polemical goal to portray the Jews as rebellious against God. And the idea that the second covenant, the covenant given to the followers of Jesus replaces the first covenant, this is called supersessionism, right? The Jews have lost their covenant. Now there's a new one and it's been given to the followers of Jesus. And so there's an individual in the book of Acts named Stephen. Stephen is um, accused by the Jews. You could you know, look this all up. He's accused by the Jews of plotting to destroy the Jerusalem temple. He obviously is a follower of Jesus. Uh, the Jews accuse him of working against the law and they have him arrested. The Romans arrest Stephen. It's unclear in the story. Again, you could look this all up. It's unclear in the story exactly like what is the nature of Stephen's trial, given the fact that there really isn't political autonomy for the Jewish people uh, in the in the first century. Um, so, you know, what that means, he's arrested. Did the Jews even have the jurisdiction to execute? You know, probably not. But in any case, we don't read this as history. We read this as polemic. So Stephen is um, put on trial. And the high priest of the Jerusalem temple is asking him questions about his loyalty uh, to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And what Stephen does is he, he responds with the, the longest speech in the book of Acts, uh, a defiant speech that explains why the Jews have lost their covenant. Uh, and the theme of the speech is rebellion. So if you look uh, through Stephen's speech, he goes through this like, just sort of long-winded review of uh, early Israelite history, skipping the 10 plagues, by the way, because his interest is not the enemy of the Jewish people, but the Jewish people themselves. So Stephen reviews the patriarchal narratives, the covenant promise to Abraham. Abraham is good. Isaac is good. That's all good. But when the people become a people, right, when the family transitions into peoplehood in Egypt, things go awry. And so um, the, the king who rules after Egypt, Stephen tells the high priest, dealt craftily with all our race, forced our ancestors to abandon their infants that they would die. And this is sort of a paraphrase of the early stories in Shemot. Um, and so uh, Moshe, you know, kills an Egyptian. He has to run away so that we all know the story. Um, and, uh, and then he sees the... Um, the burning bush and he's told by God to go back and save the Israelites from slavery fine now when he goes back I mean we have almost no reference to the 10 plagues here all right the Lord says take off the sandals from your feet the place where you're standing is holy he's citing the Septuagint verbatim here um and then Stephen sort of pauses the story for some analysis he doesn't talk about the 10 plagues he says this is the same Moses whom the people rejected to whom the people had said earlier, who made you a ruler and a judge? And whom God now sent as both ruler and liberator through an angel. Moses led the people out, 
This is all we really know about the 10 plagues, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, right? But our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. They pushed him aside. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They said to Aaron, now we're suddenly in Exodus 32 and Shemot, Lamed Bet, make gods for us who will lead the way to, uh, for us, right? This is the story of the golden calf. They made a golden calf. Stephen is not interested in the uh, hatred that Paro might or might not harbor for the Israelites. Stephen is not interested in the moral integrity or lack of integrity of the Egyptian people, the culture, the leaders. The whole point of his speech is getting to the point at which God says, enough. Israelites, you have lost the covenant. And so the story becomes a story about Israelite rebellion, not disease, right? There's no claim here like we see in Lysimachus and Appian that uh, we have a diseased uh, group of people, but they're rebellious, right? So the Christians are using this origin story to make a different argument about the Jews, but maybe towards similar ends, right? The Jews are outside of our society. They might seem to be among us, but they're in fact outside. Now I want to wrap up soon. I would just say, you know, Letter of the Hebrews is a very, very, very difficult document. Again, extremely hard to date. Um, but it's significant, uh, despite the fact that it is of unknown provenance, it's one of the most anti-Jewish documents preserved in the New Testament, along with, you know, I would say maybe a Revelation and uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, so Letter to the Hebrews is very painful document to read. Um, it does not mention the word Jews. It does not mention the word Hebrews, except in the title, which is added a few centuries after it was written. But again, in Letter to the Hebrews, the wilderness generation exemplifies defiance. It exemplifies rebellion. And the story is useful to the writer. The story of the Exodus is useful to the writer primarily in how it teaches the early Christian community about Jews, not about Egyptians. And so the enemy of the story, um, according to the speaker, is not, um, is not the Egyptians, but the Israelites themselves. So this is a step farther, I think, than Acts. Now, uh, what the author tries to do is make a link between Moses and Jesus, both of whom have to deal with, with hard-hearted, not Egyptian, but hard-hearted followers who refuse to obey. So the hard-hearted people in this retelling are the Israelites who won't listen to Moses. And the implied parallel is the Jews who will not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So the speaker says, we've become partners of Christ. If only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion. Now, who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those Israelites who sinned? whose bodies, right? Because remember the generation that left Egypt all died in the wilderness. They could not go into the land of Israel, right? So the connection between the rebellion people of the author's contemporary time and the rebellious Israelites, that's what makes the story useful to this writer. Um, now I wanna show you just a very, very supersessionist. Remember I use this term supersessionist, which means the, um, the covenant with between God and the people of Israel is irrevocably broken and replaced. It's also called replacement theology. And so I wanna show you maybe what's the most explicit 
articulation of replacement theology in the New Testament uh, is in um, the letter to the Hebrews chapter eight. Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. To that degree, he's a mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not gonna keep going. Um, you could read the rest on your own. Um, he quotes Jeremiah 31 as uh, this is a very famous passage in both early Christian, early rabbinic reading, um, this idea of a new, uh, a new covenant, a brit chadash that's mentioned in Jeremiah 31 is used by early Christians um, to argue that even in the first temple period, uh, the, the breaking of the covenant is sort of acknowledged by the prophets uh, and, and the new covenant is predicted. Okay, uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention Revelation and then I'll, I'll, I'll pause for conversation. Uh, Revelation to me is very interesting. Again, you know, when was this written? I'll put it in the late first century. Um, it's an apocalyptic text, which means that there are a lot of visions that are very uh, difficult to understand. And so what we're going to look at in chapter 11 is all uh, allegorical image that requires interpretation. Uh, but there's an image in Revelation um, of a beast that comes up from a bottomless pit to make war on them. Now the them is never named, but I'll tell you soon, it's clearly Jews in Jerusalem. A beast is going to come up from a bottomless pit and make more war on them and conquer them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. So scholars think this is post 70 CE, right? Envisioning the fall of the temple that is prophetically called Sidon and Egypt. So in here, here we see a culmination of everything we've seen so far. Appian, Lysimachus, right? Hebrews, Acts. The Israelites have become the Egyptians, right? Remember in Acts, the rebellious people were not the or not the Egyptians, they were the Israelites, right? And in Hebrews, those, uh, those people who are hard-hearted, they're not the Egyptians, they're the Israelites. And here, the Jews are Egypt. Can you imagine the polemical rigmarole <laughs> that has to happen to get to this claim? Um, Jerusalem is Sodom, Jerusalem is Egypt. And the destruction of Jerusalem that the speaker predicts is parallel to the destruction of Sodom and Egypt, those two great regions that are annihilated in defense of the covenantal uh, promises, one might say, maybe not for Sodom necessarily, but certainly for Egypt. I'm not going to go through all the church fathers. You could read that on your own, um, but it's more of the same. There is an interesting allegorization of the Exodus story, which sort of removes the Israelites from the uh, from the story altogether, but the point for the church fathers is not Jewish disease, it is Jewish rebellion, it is Jewish rebelliousness. I'm going to save this section for next week because next week we're going to talk about rabbinic sources that show awareness of Greek maybe, but certainly Christian uses of the Exodus story. And we're going to look at early rabbinic uh, literature on the 10 plagues and we're going to especially focus on the medieval sources and what happens when Christians begin to accuse uh, Jews of spreading disease through the poisoning of wells. So now I'm going to stop my share. Uh, I, I now see that there are a few questions in the chat. I haven't read them yet. Uh, so, but we're a very small group. So what I want to do, and I apologize if you send me a direct message, I haven't, I haven't read it. Uh, so I am going to put, as I always do, my email uh, in the chat box. You can email me with questions, but because we're a small group, if Noah is okay with it, I am 
open to people just unmuting themselves. Um, is that okay? Yep, feel free. Um, we can, if, if you are on camera, that helps so we can see if you're motioning to speak. Uh, I know a couple people last week had mentioned that they currently do not have access to a microphone. If that is still the case, let me know and I'm happy to read your chat comments and questions out loud. Okay. Malka, can I ask a question? Yes. So it's, I hate to say this, but the early, but the, you know, Stephen and the, well, the others, the, especially in the Hebrews part, where they are, they're actually telling the truth. The, that's the Jews are the Amkeshe Oref. And, and Moshe tears his hair out dealing with them for 40 years. So I, it's dazzling the way he takes that and twists it all around and makes, uh, and forgets about the, the, forgets about the teshuva part and God forgiving them. Exactly. The mercy of God upon the Israelites. Yeah. Is yeah. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. Uh, that's a very important point. <laughs> But the, right, the point of God's mercy upon the Israelites is not, uh, you know, doesn't make its way into Acts. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of dazzling the way that the hard heartedness of Pyro becomes the, the Jews' hard heartedness. And they were, that's the thing, they were. Absolutely. <laughs> um, somebody asked me in a private message, uh, and I'm seeing it just now, a really important question from, if I hope it's okay to say her name, Bina Presser, asks, if Judeo was such a backwater, why was Titus so proud of his conquest as to build the triumphal arch? And I think this is a really fascinating question. Uh, so I'd like to take a minute to uh, talk about that. So what's interesting about the war is that um, the propaganda that follows the fall of Judea in 73 is sort of shockingly disproportionate, right? Because Judea is a small part of, of the Roman empire. And yet they actually build two triumphal arches, one in the Circus Maximus, which is yet to be fully excavated and one that stands uh, today. And of course the triumphal parade, right? And the coins, numismatics, that's the study of ancient coins. So many coins that have resurfaced all throughout Europe that say Judea Capta, not just with one image, but multiple images. I mean, they were on a propaganda campaign. Why? Well, first of all, what's very bizarre is that Rome treats Judea as an outside country to itself, right? I hate to go back to North Dakota, but I'm going to do it. If North Dakota secedes from the Union, you don't then congratulate yourself for convincing North Dakota to decide after all to stay in the union, right? You don't treat a rebellion that happens within your empire as something of a conquest, right? Like we've conquered this territory. Well, it's actually not a competing country. It's not a competing outside territory. It's part of the Roman empire. So you only do those triumphs when you have a war, right? Against another country over contested territory. And that is not what happens with Judea at all. And yet Rome goes on this propaganda campaign, campaign to treat Judea like, like that's what's happening. Um, now, to understand this, first of all, you have to understand that Vespasian's rule is very tenuous. In 69 CE, he has to make an argument for his own legitimacy. He is the, the uh, war, what's the phrase, like the, um, the war savvy general. 
Now, uh, Nero dies in 69. It's the year of the four kings. He's fighting for power against three other claimants to rule, but it's only Vespasian who's seen as really militarily competent. And you know how they say that in times of uh, instability, you want a father, and in times of, and this is like very gendered, and I apologize, but in times of stability, you want like the maternal figure. Oh gosh, I regret even saying that because it kind of makes me vomit in my mouth a little bit. But like Vespasian is tough. And he uses Jerusalem as an example of how he's going to keep Rome safe again. See what I did there? Uh, but he, he's a very tough ruler. And this impresses the people who want to feel safe. The first century is a very, very unstable time. And there's so much turnover with coups and suicides and rebellions. Uh, and so in the Flavian dynasty, what the people get is, is a tough hand. And so he uses them as an example. I thought that was a really good question. I just, I, I hope it's okay. I spent some time on it. I didn't actually read the other comments. Yeah, anything else? Can I ask a question? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the example that you give of Appian uh, in the context of a very multicultural uh, environment that they lived in, in which there were many gods and many cultures uh, in a way that did not exist after the Christian conquest of Europe where there was only one God and all of that. Can you hear me? It's, it's hard, it's hard to hear you. Sorry, so can, is, is, is this better? Is this, is this uh, am yeah, I closer? Yeah. Okay, fine. So it, it, the, the multicultural nature of the Roman empire is very different from the Christian right. empire that succeeded. And the Appian quotes or the, and the other anti, what we call anti-Jewish quotes, um, I'm wondering how unique they were or were there lots of Petard thrown at lots of different groups by lots of different people. I mean, I can't believe that this was the sole example of anti-sectarian um, propaganda. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what context Appian and the others were in. Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, I agree and I don't agree. I, I agree because, look, the Christians themselves are an illegal sect that the Roman Empire does not acknowledge. And so for at least two centuries, they're persecuting and killing Christians. Now, where would we have such a parallel in the pre-Christian era? I don't see uh, evidence for other, mi other ethnic minorities who are treated like the Jews are treated because ultimately those minorities do culturally assimilate. You do have some, what I would call hate speech against the native Egyptians, which are considered by both um, Romans and Greeks to be barbarians. And again, that's a, that's a, a word in Greek. Barbaros is a non-Greek speaker because if you don't speak Greek, you sound like bar, 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 bar. So the Egyptians are considered barbarians and there's a lot of anti-Egyptian literature, even actually from Jews who are trying to push the Greeks down. So Philo says, uh, the Egyptians are ugly, you know, and he talks about how they're kind of stupid too. Uh, you know, it makes us a little uncomfortable to think about that, but this is how, um, this is how he describes some native Egyptians. So, you know, there is that kind of like throwing insults around and it could be that there are other minority groups who are the recipients of hatred, uh, but I don't know of a parallel pre-Christian that would compare it with what people are saying about the Jews. And I think that that's interesting. Maybe I'm just not enough of a classics professor to have that evidence, but I haven't come across it. Well, it's also because the only way that Appian is preserved is through Josephus. We preserve the That's evidence true. of the anti-Jewish anti right. activity. Whoever was being thrown a petard at at that time didn't survive. And so those texts perhaps didn't survive. But you have Cicero, you have Juvenal, you have Seneca, right? You have the greatest orators of the late first century BC and early century C. You have their writings. 
And if, for example, if you read the speeches of Cicero and you read what he says about the Jews, whoa, Cicero did not like the Jews. I don't know, and I have read some Cicero, that he um, directs, well, let's say the Germans are a good example, the Germanic tribes, right? The, the Roman Empire is always just struggling with these Germanic tribes, but you don't see the generalizations about the inherent sort of like, I guess you would go back to this like leech on society image. You don't have those kinds of accusations. The Germanic tribes are uncultivated, right? Or they're uh, unsophisticated. But the accusations that you see against the Jews, you don't see against them. Now I'm trying to think of another example that would be good. Um, but again, you know, I, I, I can't, I, I can't think of it. But yeah, I mean, look at, look at Seneca. Look, so we do have the writings of these Roman figures. Um, I'm not an expert in all of them, again, and I think you're asking a very important question, but no, I, I still think that there's something distinctive. Um, and I know I'm not objective, but I think that there's something distinctive about that polemic against the Jews. Misanthropia, that they're anti-people. This is something quite particular uh, to the Jewish experience. But again, Christians are horribly uh, persecuted for uh, centuries until Constantine. So, so I think that your point is well taken. Uh, Viva Hammer, your question about the Yamsuk, not the Mediterranean. No, because they're Alexandrian texts, right? So it wouldn't be the Yamsuf, it would probably be like Alexandria, right, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. So even if the story that they're retelling would maybe be closer to the Reed Sea, but it could be that they're imagining, right, because Alexandria is a port city. So I'm not, I'm not convinced. It could be the Yamsuf, but I don't know. Um, I see that Chaya Juni is raising her hand, but, you know, I, I also am aware of the time. So I'm going to leave it up to Noah to decide what to do. Uh, if you're willing to take another question, we can. Okay, one more question. Yeah, and then we'll say goodbye. Sorry, I have actually two really quick questions. Um, okay. The first one, just once you mentioned the, uh, sorry, the barbarian, the bar, bar, bar. Do you know yeah. what that's related to the Barbary, like the Barbary coast at all? I'm, I've always been curious about that. Just I don't know. Okay, um, and a more on-topic question. Just you mentioned before the, um, the riots in Alexandria, and I think one of the times you said that hundreds of people were killed and once that hundreds of thousands of people were killed. So just which one was that? Hundreds. Oh, okay, thank you. With the Jewish war in Judea, the casualties are very, very high. It's a seven year uh -huh. war. It's another thing that we don't realize. We think, oh, 70 or 69, but it's a seven year war. I mean, the rebellion gets going in 66. Um, the casualties are very, they're astronomical and even higher with Bar Kokhba in 135. Uh, so there you're talking, you know, you're talking tens of thousands easily, probably more. The uh, riots in 38 CE are probably hundreds. So, you know, it's not, it's not like an existential crisis. It's not about the annihilation of the Jews of Alexandria, but it's traumatic. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Thank you. So this was a very nice hour to spend with all of you. Thank you very much for uh, being with me. And um, yeah, and I look forward to next week. All right. So thank you, firstly, to Dr. Simkovich for an excellent class. Um, <laughs> I always enjoy Jewish classes, but this uh, is a particularly lively class, especially for this time of night. Uh, and I also need to thank everyone else who is here. And thank you for your constant participation in Drisha's learning community, whether on Zoom, on Facebook, or on Drisha Live. We have lots of other classes coming up. Feel free to check them out on our website and register for them. And have a wonderful night. And I look forward to see, seeing, hopefully, everyone again next week. So be well. Bye.